Well, um, let's review a little bit and get into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, last week, uh, chapter 9, of course, ended with Jesus saying, and he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. He said to his disciples. So that leaves us with a bit of a question. Uh, who are the disciples of Jesus? And uh, so far, the only disciples that have been mentioned uh, are two sets of brothers and Matthew. So we have Peter and his brother Andrew. We have James and his brother John. And then, of course, we picked up Matthew just a bit ago, who's the author of the gospel. So is that all of them? Are there more? Well, it turns out that there's actually 12 of these men. And uh, so today, I want to look briefly at the men. I wish I could say more about them. Uh, of course, tradition has uh, a plethora of things to say about them. Uh, but tradition is to be accepted with um, some skepticism. But as far as uh, the details that we have in the scriptures, there's not tons. But So I'll talk a little bit about that. But I want to talk more about what made these men significant to the mission of Christ. And um, I think that's more important than exactly who they were. So why don't we do this? Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. <clears throat> now the name, names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that um, you would be with us this morning, especially as we discuss some of the issues of <clears throat> verse one, <clears throat> for nothing else is controversial. And Lord, that you would use it to teach us, to instruct us. And Lord, again, I thank you for Ron and his bride, the encouragement they've been to me, the service that they've been to your people. I pray that his example would um, be followed and uh, would be perpetuated in this particular fellowship. Lord, as you said, that the greatest among you is the servant of all. Help us to be, if we are to be competitive, to be competitive in the, the area of service, Lord, and considering others more valuable than ourselves, as Paul says in Philippians 2. And Lord, I'm grateful for the progress with Isaac, and I just pray that you would continue to... Um, be with him and keep healing his body. But Lord, I would definitely want to honor his request that he would have opportunity to share the gospel uh, in his particular circumstance and that that witness would be strong there in the hospital. And uh, just my brief time there, um, it's hospitals used to be a place where the godly would serve, but now it's godless in many ways. And, and I just pray that the light of your gospel would penetrate that place and that, Lord, you'd lead people to you through Isaac's testimony and his preaching of the word, Lord. 
Thank you that he's still at the pulpit, uh, even though he's laying down. And uh, Lord, we thank you for Joe Sanderson, Lord. What a great, what a great man. And um, I thank you that he's with you. But Lord, we do pray now for, for Judy, who's uh, left here with us, that you would grant her peace, Lord, that she would, through all this, especially, Lord, in the next few days and months, that her time with you would give her strength and hope. And um, Lord, that you would grant strength where she at times will not have any. And so do for her what we can't do for her, what she can't do for herself. And um, just bring her through this, Lord, uh, in faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Good to see you guys. You guys had a good Thanksgiving? Yeah. So are you the kind of people that, you know, you, you, you kind of you eat at a decent level just so that on Thanksgiving you can glut yourself? Or are you like most Americans, you glut yourself all year and then you super glut yourself on Thanksgiving? Yeah, so. Well, I like Thanksgiving because we just take it easy and I get to hang out in my PJs most of the day and just cook and hang out with my kids and it was good. So I hope that Christmas is just as non-eventful. Family, food, and that's about it. So no traveling. So who traveled? Anybody travel? Sarah, when you raise your hand that you traveled, I think of India. You didn't go to India. Okay, good. All right. Okay, well, uh, let's, uh, let's get into our text, verse 1. It says, And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So Jesus calls the 12 and before he's going to send them out and he gives them power. That is, and it says over unclean spirits and to heal all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. So power. Now the New King James Version remains loyal to the rendering of the Greek word in the King James translation, but the word itself is not the usual word for power, uh, which is dunamis. This is the word exousia, which actually means authority, authority. And this whole study of authority, in, especially in the New Testament, is very interesting. It, it means dominion. It, it's, it's talking about jurisdiction. Uh, sometimes it speaks of someone's right to do something. Um, you know, Jesus um, gave us the right, or we might say even the authority, to become the children of God through faith. That has to be granted to humanity, that right, okay? That authority, if you will. It speaks of a person's authority to act or to perform a certain task. So Jesus wasn't giving these disciples superpowers. Uh, they weren't being made into superheroes. So if you're a a Marvel fan, um, it's just too bad. That's not what they were. But I think it's even better, okay? Jesus was giving them the authority to command demons to vacate and the authority to eradicate illness. That's much better than being a superhero. I guess that actually is a superhero, a real one, right? So Jesus was essentially sort of promoting these guys to a rank that would be superior to the demons 
and giving them this authority to eradicate illness. And it's all in preparation before he, he sends them out into the field, as it were, uh, the harvest. Now, this is strange to us because we don't usually think of authority as the means by which demons come and go or that illness is eradicated, do we? I don't you just think, well, if I just had the authority, I could make this, this sickness go away. It's a really interesting use of the word or the idea, but that's exactly how it functions in the economy of God. For the apostle, uh, as men, it's, it's not an issue of exerting energy. You remember when the woman uh, that had the issue of bleeding reached out and touched Jesus' garments, uh, he said power came out of him. That doesn't happen to us. Power doesn't come out of us, okay? So it's not an issue of these men exerting energy because we just don't have power within ourselves to exert uh, energy toward a demon or toward an illness. I can't stand over it and, you know, like, uh, well, I won't use that illustration, but... <laughs> but it's not like electricity comes out of us or, or whatever. It's, it's just not, it's not how it works. But Christ here is delegating his authority to them so that at their command, demons would flee and illness would fade away. Um, Christ is the one that exerts the power as the apostles exercise authority that's been delegated to them. Now, we've already seen the issue of authority arise in the narrative uh, prior to now in Matthew's gospel. And it adds to kind of this uh, study of authority. It began with Jesus teaching with authority. And it was unlike the, what the scribes did. He was teaching with authority. It was having an impact on the soul, of the heart of man. The, another interesting story is when the centurion came to Jesus and, you know, he, and Jesus said, well, I'll come with you, that is to heal his servant. And he said, oh, don't bother. And the centurion said, because I understand authority. And Jesus was like, whoa. And he was surprised at the man's faith. And so Jesus in his authority could heal someone even at a distance. So authority isn't like hindered by distance. It's interesting. Also, Jesus had authority to forgive the sins of the paralytic. And then there's this interesting statement by the people. It says, and the people marveled when they saw that God had given such authority to men. That's not something I would have said. I would have said something else. I probably would have just said, wow. But authority wouldn't have been the thing that I would have addressed. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will demonstrate his authority to enter into the temple, his father's house, and rebuke those who sold goods and exchanged money. And then, of course, after the resurrection, Jesus says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And then with his first decree of authority, he says, go, go. In John's gospel, Jesus has the authority, it says, to judge all of humanity. He will come and he will judge the living and the dead. And I think probably the most interesting exercise of authority is Jesus says, I have authority. He says, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody has that kind of power or authority. He says, but I have the authority to lay it down. And when my father says go, I have the authority to take it back again. Authority to give my life up and to take it back. Very interesting. But authority, it all belongs to Christ. And as we see through the gospels, he exercises it over everything, 
over the natural and the spiritual realm, over demons, over illness, and over nature itself, as we saw on the boat, right? He calmed the wind and the waves, and there was a great calm. And then Jesus, of course, can grant authority to anyone he chooses, anyone he chooses. And here in the text, he gives authority to his 12 disciples for this specific task that lies before them. And it's going to be an interesting task. But a question comes up, and maybe it's because I was in and out of Pentecostal and charismatic circles growing up. Um, Has Jesus given this same authority, degree of authority or level of authority to any believers today? Now, it may come at great risk that I even address this today, uh, especially with how our church has changed over the years because we have such a mixed uh, multitude of, of variety in this room. Um, it's, fun, it's fun talking to other pastors um, and them describing the nature of their fellowship, and then I describe mine, and I said, man, I've got people from all over the board from every different denomination and, and evangelical persuasion out there. And I've learned to really enjoy it uh, because of the emphasis of, of um, Christian unity in the New Testament. Not in an ecumenical sense where it's all unity for the sake of unity, because we don't play that game. Uh, it's unity for the sake of truth, amen? And uh, we're not going to compromise that, but even within the spectrum of evangelical theology, there's differences, and, uh, and I'm probably going to encounter some of those differences today, uh, but I have to teach the word, and I want to address more fully the issue of authority when it comes to us, because we want to know how this applies to us in some fashion, don't we? And the truth is, most of us would love to have the same level of authority as the apostles, because I would love to go to Swedish hospital right now and lay hands on Isaac and have this all done with, amen? So if, um, if I offend you today by addressing this in a way that you don't appreciate, please be mature enough to just come and let's, let's talk about it, okay? Fair enough? Because I do love you and uh, I don't seek to offend anyone, uh, but I have to teach the word, that's my, my job, as one pastor says, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. And, uh, So let me deliver some mail this morning on this issue of authority when it comes to us. So the question is, has he given the same authority to any believers today? Now, there are some who insist that he has. Uh, Some believe that that all believers have it. Others believe that just modern-day apostles and prophets have it. And you know my view on modern-day apostles and prophets already. But what does the Bible say? What what does Jesus actually say about this? Now first, those who claim to have the the same kind or degree of authority as the apostles simply fail to exercise that authority in any real way. For example, we don't see people today performing the miracles like the apostles. We just don't see it. And, And certainly no one today is performing miracles at the same frequency as the apostles. And no one is performing miracles today in the presence of their skeptics. This is one of the best things about uh, that, this whole issue. Uh, skeptics who could contradict or verify the legitimacy of their supposed miracles. Also, those who claim apostolic or prophetic authority to heal 
are among some of the most egregious heretics out there. And that's very concerning. So I want to address each of these points a little bit. First, we, you know, we never see these so-called healers and apostles today going to hospitals to heal the masses. We don't really see them going to the people who need healing most, like Jesus did. And one of the things that I love is Jesus did healings in the open air, in the public, and then he did house calls. He was a good physician. And we also see the apostles doing this. They would heal out in the open. And then when there was a need because somebody couldn't be brought out of their home, what would they do? They would go to their house. They would serve them. They would serve them. These people today are never in an environment where things can be verified or denied. But Jesus and the disciples, you know, they were in small towns where everyone knew everyone. It's, it's not like Centralia. They were in Capernaum, mostly. And Capernaum wasn't even close to the size of Centralia, okay? At about any given time, the, the population of Capernaum is in Walmart. We're talking about a small town, okay? Small town. Everybody knew everyone, including the local paralytic, who he was, the blind man, the leper, the demon-possessed, whoever. And right in front of their skeptics, they would perform undeniable miracles, miracle after miracle. In fact, the Pharisees, this is so great in the Gospels, they were used to seeing Jesus perform miracles. They were just as used to seeing Jesus perform miracles as the children of Israel were used to seeing miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness. But neither of them believed. When the Pharisees witnessed a miracle, they would just get mad because Jesus performed those miracles on the Sabbath. Therefore, they concluded that he was evil. You know, there's the story that they even baited Jesus. They got together in advance and said, let's find this poor old guy with a withered hand and let's bring him to the synagogue on the Sabbath and we'll catch that guy healing somebody, that devil. So they brought him to the synagogue and they knew just as that man was in Jesus' sight, compassion started to come out of Jesus. And they're like, we've got him now. And of course, Jesus gave him, as they say in Hawaii, the stink eye. <laughs> and he healed the man and he rebuked, well, first he rebuked the Pharisees because he knew what they were up to. He baited him and he still healed a man right in front of them. When he cast out demons right in front of their eyes, they would acknowledge the miracle, but then they said that he did it by the power of the prince of darkness. That's blasphemy. And instead of rejoicing that he raised Lazarus to life again, they condemned Jesus to death. The Pharisees were often present to verify that legitimate miracles were performed, but they would not confess that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, if you ask Jesus' skeptics, is he performing legitimate miracles? They would say, yep. Just ask Nicodemus, who said to Jesus, Rabbi, we, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Must have been a secret conversation, John 3, 2. And the chief priests, when, they got, when the Sanhedrin got together, they said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. John 11, we got to get rid of him because of this. The same thing happened with the apostles. In Acts 4, 16, we have the Sanhedrin has convened once again. But check out why. What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Wow. But there are no skeptics 
verifying the so-called healings of the so-called apostles and healers today. This is not happening. They insulate themselves. They protect themselves, unlike Jesus. I, too, am a skeptic, not of legitimate healings and miracles, but of these people. They do not demonstrate in a real way that they have the authority that the apostles had. Now, I've attended many of their meetings where they, the focus is healing people and delivering them from demons, but I've witnessed nothing more than hype and noise. And I see the exact same thing on TV, and it's a mockery of what Jesus taught and what he did in the, the Gospels and what the, the apostles did in the book of Acts. But there's a bigger problem with these people who are known as healers and apostles today. The bigger problem is that they're false teachers. They're false teachers. You know, the apostles of Jesus never made a doctrinal error, never made a doctrinal error. But these so-called apostles and healers today make errors in theology and doctrine at the most elementary level all of the time. And it's not simply a slip of the tongue because when they have what their followers call a slip of the tongue, these people never come out and correct it. They never say, I'm sorry, uh, what I meant to say was, that doesn't happen. It's like when Benny Hinn informed his audience that there's actually nine Holy Spirits. Very seriously telling his audience, oh, you need to understand that there are, it's fascinating, there are actually nine Holy Spirits, okay? Or Stephen Furtick, who claimed to be Almighty God without correcting himself, or Joel Olstein, who pushes universalism, the doctrine that everyone will be saved even if they reject Christ. It's not simply bad theology, it's heresy and it's blasphemy. It's ridiculous. In the Old Testament, as we've talked about, God commanded that people of this sort be executed. Now, that's not a part of the current economy, <laughs> but God's view of heresy and heretics has not changed. But today, many in the church overlook these kinds of things when it comes to their celebrity pastors. It's interesting that when we've talked about church discipline, when, when somebody in the laity uh, sins, they get three strikes. Uh, when a heretic uh, comes into the church, uh, he gets one strike. And the same with a leader in the church. Okay? He's to be confronted. If he does not repent, he's to be addressed publicly. That's what Paul says to Timothy. But you know, the fact is, in most churches today, leaders are insulated when they sin, and the laity is shunned, exposed, and treated less. It's on its head, according to the scriptures. Those in leadership have greater accountability to the word of God and to the people of God. There's more leniency to the laity. Three strikes. Very interesting. Pastors that make those kinds of errors, they're not qualified to be in teaching ministry in the church. Well, less the pastorate. We should not tolerate that. You shouldn't tolerate it from me. If I make a theological error, if I make a moral error, I need to confess it to you. Well, initially in private, but if I make it, if I make a theological error from here, guess what I need to do next Sunday? I need to apologize. I need to correct my theology. Okay? If it's a slip of the tongue, that's one thing. But if it's an error in the doctrines of God, it's sacred, right? It's sacred. It has to be corrected. Yeah. So has Jesus given the same degree of authority to all believers or any believer today? Well, the Bible never says that he has. And the places that we would expect to find that he has, it's not there. Like Romans 12, it's not in 1 Corinthians 12 or 13 or Ephesians 4 or 1 Peter 4. 
That's where all the gifts are mentioned. All of them are mentioned in those chapters of the Bible. That's where we would expect to find that Jesus has granted that kind of authority to God's people today. But it's never mentioned that way. In fact, in the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, no one is said to have the gift of healing. The text actually says gifts of healings. Both words are plural. Gifts of healings. What does that mean? Why is it stated so differently than the other gifts? I admit the phrase is a bit strange. Paul's original audience probably understood exactly what he meant, but it's a little unclear today. Uh, I've read multiple scholars on all spectrums of theology, and uh, they're on a lot of different pages. Uh, One of the most capable Greek scholars in the world today believes that the plurality of both words suggests that the Holy Spirit gave to one person the ability or power to heal one kind of disease and to another a different disease. But in the context of the gifts, it's not an issue of authority. It's an issue of uh, power or ability by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working through the person that he is gifted accordingly. So there seems to be a serious contrast with how Jesus gave authority to the apostles to cast out demons and heal all diseases compared to giving an ability to some people to perform certain tasks within the body of Christ. So we do not share the same degree of authority as the apostles, even though God may grant us the ability, excuse me, on occasion to heal people through the power of the spirit or to even evict a demon, okay? On a number of occasions over the last 16 years that I've been here, we've had uh, very small children having night terrors. Now, I didn't know what a night terror was until the first case that we dealt with. And when I hear that a child is seeing things that, of that nature, I think, well, what kind of movies do you let the child watch at home? And so I investigate with the parents because that might be the thing that needs to be addressed. But when a parent assures me that we don't even own a TV, they're not exposed to magazines, books, or anything like this, this is more imagination than a child can come up with. And when we've prayed for children that have night terrors, they have been delivered from that. And I believe it's demonic. I really do. And so I believe that God does things. We've seen people healed. But I'll tell you, not everybody I pray for is healed. Okay? But isn't that God's prerogative? Isn't that God's prerogative? So just because we don't have the same level of authority as the apostles does not negate the existence or reality of the gifts our authority to preach the gospel. It doesn't negate the fact that we are led by the Spirit of God. In fact, Paul says, if you're a child of God, you're led by the Spirit. If you're not led by the Spirit, we have a regeneration problem, right? A born-again problem. So Christ did something different with the apostles that he's not doing today, okay? Also, I think it's worth noting in this whole context of authority as I was studying this that Of course, we know that Jesus possesses all authority, right? All authority, all power. The apostles certainly had less authority than Jesus, which was delegated, and we have less. But there was this this example in the scriptures that is very interesting. You know, but to start out, if Jesus went to cast out a demon, there was no demon that could say, no thanks. Fine where I am, thanks. Right? No, they had to go. No illness, no disease could resist his will. But there was a particular demon that the apostles could not cast out. 
This is interesting. He had given them authority to cast out demons. But then when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the boys got hung up on something. There was this rascally demon that just wouldn't listen in Matthew 17. It seems that this particular demon needed something different. It was like removing him was above their pay grade. Christ hadn't quite given them that much authority. And so Jesus says, this kind does not come out without fasting and prayer. It's interesting. And so Jesus had to exert his authority. And what happened? Evicted, gone. Jesus had ultimate authority. The apostles had great authority, but certainly less than Christ. And we have less than the apostles. So the question is now, well, why did the apostles have more authority than us today? Why was it granted? Why was it given? Well, authority was given to them because of the unique task that Christ had committed to them. In the section following this one, uh, where Jesus gives instruction about you know, going into all the cities of Israel with their new authority, it wasn't the performing of miracles that made their mission so controversial and dangerous. It was the preaching of the gospel. You see, people welcome miracles, typically. That's it, of course, challenges their position in the community, like the Pharisees, but most people welcome miracles. So that's not what sets them off. It's not what we say today. It doesn't trigger them. What triggers people today? People in their 50s like, trigger, trigger. What sets people off today is what you put on Twitter. <laughs> it's words. It's the words spoken. And nothing triggers people like the message of the gospel that says you must repent, you must turn away from sin, and you must yield your life to Jesus. Okay? Understand something. Authority was not given to the apostles for the sake of performing miracles. That's not what it was. It was given to them as a means of verifying the message of the gospel. It authenticated it. Jesus performed miracles to authenticate his identity. He even said to the unbelieving Pharisees, he said, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in the father. Jesus said something very similar to Philip. Remember Philip said, Show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus starts scratching his head. What do you mean? <laughs> also remember from our story last Sunday, it was because of the signs, <clears throat> because of the miracles, that the blind men believed that Jesus was heir to the throne of David. Jesus was performing the miracles described in Isaiah 35. Jesus said, the very works that I do bear witness of me, what? That the Father has sent me. How was Israel supposed to know that God sent Christ to them? By the miracles, the works performed by Jesus. In Acts 2.22, Peter said that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Attested by God. How? Signs, wonders, miracles. So the authority given to the apostles to perform miracles was not for the sake of performing miracles. The miracles authenticated their message that Jesus is the Messiah. It it's, makes it genuine. The authority given to them ultimately led to the writing of the New Testament and the establishment of the church throughout the Roman world. You know, Paul says that the household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20. So in other words, to get the church off the ground required that God grant authority to the apostles to go out and preach Christ. 
And then he authenticated their message through signs and wonders. Stated again by the author of Hebrews, he says that the Christian faith first began to be preached by Jesus and was confirmed to us by the apostles, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 1, 3 through 4. Do you see the connection there? God bore witness to the message of Christ by way of signs and wonders with various miracles, just as he did with the apostles. Authority was given to them to get the church established, giving to the church both the doctrines of the faith and how we should live for Christ in the faith. We call it faith and practice. Where do we get it? You didn't get it from me. I ain't got that kind of authority. We got it from the apostles. Amen? Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of everything that I have said to you. That's the gospels. He also said that when he comes, he will lead you into all truth. That's the epistles. They gave to us our faith, the faith of Christ, and how we should live for Christ. And they authenticated all of it with the authority that Christ gave them as they performed signs, wonders, and miracles. Understand, currently we are not, as the church today, establishing the church. Okay, we are building on the foundation laid by the apostles who had the authority to accomplish that mission in the first century. Now, we're still planting churches, but we're not establishing the church. We're not creating doctrine. Okay, if you find me creating doctrine, fire me. Send me packing, okay? If I try to teach you to practice contrary to the scriptures, send me on my way. Okay, get Ron up here. Bring him back, all right? Faith and practice came from the apostles who had authority granted to them from Christ. So do we have the same authority the apostles? No, God has not granted that level of authority to us. Why not? Because that authority was needed in the beginning to authenticate the message in order to establish the church itself. Does God grant miracles today? Please say yes, okay? Does he work through us to evict demons? Yes, when he chooses to, when he chooses to, and to serve his own purposes. Would he use a miracle today to authenticate the preaching of the gospel? I think so. I believe so, especially among unreached people groups. Is it the same as with the apostles? No. Scripture never communicates that, and nothing in history demonstrates it, okay? So back to the apostles. Um, who are these men that Jesus gave authority to? Again, if, uh, if you would like to discuss our potential differences, please talk to me about that, okay? Verse two, here's the guys. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, real quick, for the first and last time, Matthew refers to the boys as apostles. But just a second ago, they were called disciples. What is the difference between disciples and apostles? A disciple is a learner, a student, a pupil, Okay. Every believer in Christ is called to be a lifelong disciple. So the apostles didn't stop being disciples when they became apostles, okay? But something was added to it. An apostle is someone who is sent out. It's actually what the apostolos means in the Greek. But they're someone who are commissioned to go and represent the one who has sent them. They're, they're much like an ambassador, okay? Now, I think it's appropriate to refer to the disciples as apostles at this, time, at this point because Jesus is about to send them out and he's, he's sending them out with a very specific authority. And when they go out, they're to preach the gospel and they're to authenticate the message with 
this authority that they have. So let's look at the guys. Now, in every list provided in the New Testament, there are four of them. Peter is mentioned first in all of them. And Judas is mentioned last, except for the list provided in Acts chapter 1, where he's not mentioned at all, okay, because he's gone. Peter was the foremost apostle among the original 12, okay, and Judas was the least among them who uh, we know murdered himself and then went into perdition. All four lists lists of apostles begin with the four fishermen. Uh, I don't know why that's important. Uh, Always two sets of brothers. Uh, Their names aren't always in order except for Peter's, okay, because he's always mentioned first. So we have Peter and Andrew, the sons of Jonah. We have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, Now, as I said at the beginning, we actually know very little of these men, but isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? Uh, The story is not about them. It's about Christ. And uh, this whole thing is not about us. It's about Jesus. Amen? When people... Uh, You know, the guys came to John the Baptist and said, look, all are following after Jesus. And John had a pity party. No, he he said, awesome. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. Okay, the gospel is about Jesus. But there are a few things that we, we do know about the boys. Peter, it says, was also called Simon. And uh, Jesus called him Cephas. That's in John 142. Uh, We know that Peter was a little intense. He was passionate, but he was also impulsive. He had foot and mouth disease at times. uh, But I love people like Peter because they're the people that actually get stuff done, right? His greatest strengths, though, were often his weaknesses. Tradition tells us that Peter oversaw the writing of Mark's gospel. Mark became sort of a disciple of Peter and And who knows, maybe Peter wasn't a great, didn't have good handwriting or something, but he superintended Mark's gospel. He also penned uh, first and second Peter. Uh, We know that Peter was married and that he traveled in missions with his wife after the church was established in Jerusalem. Andrew and John, uh, these were the first converts to Christ. We know that from John chapter 1, verse 37 through 40. Now, John, of course, like many authors in Scripture, they do their best to remain anonymous, but I think it becomes quite evident that he's the other disciple mentioned in the chapter. He, uh, John, he's the author of the fourth gospel. He penned first, second, and third John and the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, uh, he put down some ink for the church. Amen? Yeah. Tradition tells us that he alone escaped martyrdom and lived to a very old age, somewhere in his 90s. And that's when we got his epistles and the revelation. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaeus, whose surname was Thaddeus. Philip, we know little about. Uh, This Philip is not the deacon from Acts chapter 6 and 7, or as we call him, the evangelist who started the... uh, the uh, revival in Samaria, and then was down in the desert and led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, had daughters and all that. That's this different guy. This is Philip the Apostle. We have Bartholomew. What a great name. Yeah. It, it means son of, uh, well, it's disputed how we, we finish that, that last part of the name. Bar is, means son, and I don't know who Tholomew was, but uh, some say it's uh, like a Ptolemy or something like that. 
the, the evidence indicates that this is also Nathaniel. And what we encounter uh, oftentimes in the New Testament is people had many names, uh, and they acquired names in different ways. Uh, so Nathaniel shows up in John 1, 43 through 46. He's the man Jesus says, in whom there is no guile. Thomas was also named Didymus, uh, which means the twin. So instead of calling him by his name, they called him the twin. He's known as the doubter. I'm not sure that's fair uh, to go down in history as the doubter. Uh, what would we call Peter? He, he uh, three times, you know. But it's out of, uh, you know, that whole story that, you know, Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. And then he says, look, touch it and know. And then Thomas has that great confession. He says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. So maybe he was the great confessor rather than the doubter. Yeah. So when you die, we'll try to give you a good nickname. How's that? Matthew, the tax collector. uh, He's also probably called Levi elsewhere. It's interesting that Matthew... Uh, recorded his past occupation for everyone to see. Yeah. And I think it's significant because for many reasons, we can tell from his gospel that he wrote it to Jews living in Israel. And we know that the Jews despise the tax collectors, but it wasn't something that they hid, but it's also not hid that he was converted and he was transformed by the gospel. And so it's essentially a part of his testimony. It was honest and it was humble. And I would encourage all of us to, to be the same. There's something in our past that is rotten. And as Paul says to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you know, some of you were, he says, homosexuals and catamites, and he just goes down all these sexual sins and, and other ethical things. And he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified. See, that's part of our story. And that should be told people. Uh, it's, you know, what's so powerful in, in uh, advertisement so often is the before and the after. Amen? There's what I was. And because of the grace of Christ, this is what I am now. Share that, okay? Share it. People, they want to hear it. The next apostle was James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, there's some speculation that this James and Matthew were brothers, uh, partly because they're listed together, but then also their fathers have the same name. Uh, that's speculation. I don't know for sure. Uh, maybe we'll find out some, someday. And Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. That is a cool name. Uh, this is not to be confused with the young Thaddeus that attends Calvary Chapel. He's too young to be. Where is, is Thaddeus here right now? He's not even here. There's another Thaddeus. Oh, yeah. It's a sweet name, Thaddeus. But you're not an apostle. Sorry. Simon the Canaanite. Uh, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Simon the Canaanite, there's, there's some dispute over this word here uh, because Simon was not a pagan. He was an Israelite. Uh, so this is Simon the Zealot. And uh, the Zealots uh, are an interesting part of history in uh, Israel at that time. And uh, they're really to blame for why the Romans came down and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Uh, they actually got their team together uh, within a revolt. They, they got into Jerusalem. They, they, they dismantled the priesthood of the high priest. They appointed their own, and they killed the Romans in the city. And then, of course, that information got to Rome, 
And then they commissioned Titus the Roman, and he came down with the Roman legions, and uh, it brought an end to the era of the zealots. Simon was formerly a part of that political uh, extremist group, but now he's a follower of Jesus. Initially, I would, I'm suspect that he started following Jesus because he thought Jesus as the Messiah was going to start this military revolt against and then as time went on, he realized that the kingdom stuff is for later. Uh, this was necessary in advance. Of course, we have Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Christ, who kind of slithers in and out of the narrative like a snake in the underbrush until he's dangling from a tree in the open air. Yeah, your sins will find you out. He comes out. And uh, he was the treasurer of Jesus' posse, and uh, he was a thief. I always find that interesting that Jesus allowed him to be that. Uh, But perhaps for another discussion, it's even more fascinating that Jesus gave this authority to Judas as he went out, knowing that Judas would later betray and commit all of the evil that he did. Very interesting, the way that God decides to work. Amen? Okay, I'm going long. I got to get you out of here. Uh, Next week, we'll look at Jesus' instruction to these men about the mission he's sending them out with, uh, or to with authority, and then the dangers that will come along with it, and the dangers that he forewarns them about are the dangers that continue to this day, uh, especially in India and China and Muslim-majority countries. So not much has changed. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray.